This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the 2020 Real Estate Forum, brought to you virtually by Informa Markets. Join the industry on the 2nd and 3rd December by registering at realestateforums.com after you listen to this episode to join Aaron and myself at the forum this year. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. This episode today is sponsored by Wise Meter Solutions. Forward-thinking owners and managers are embracing submetering, and more of those companies are choosing Wise Meter Solutions as their partner. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise has become synonymous with creating the efficient buildings of tomorrow your residents want today. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, is Adam Pawatik. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Frank Magliocco who's the national real estate leader at PwC. Frank, nice to have you back. This is the third year we've done this with you, and I think maybe the fourth year we've done this sort of merging trends in Canadian real estate topics. So it's nice to have you back. Thanks for coming back on. Well, thanks a lot. It's always fun to talk to you too. It's always entertaining. You know, I think probably in the show notes, we'll send people back to the others if they really want to see what we talked about. But, you know, I think it's appropriate at the very least before we jump into some of the more detailed topics. Just explain the history of this report, the process, maybe kind of in an elevator pitch. Sure. So the Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2021 is, we've been doing this for over 40 years for North America. We're in our, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, probably a 16th year that we're doing it here for Canada as a separate chapter. And as part of that, we interview over 200 in Canada, in Canada, over 200 C-suite executives that range from institutional investors to the private developers of homes covering all asset classes. And we also send a survey of over 2,000 surveys that cover both here in Canada and the, and the U.S. And we accumulate all that data and it's basically the views of the real estate people. And I think I mentioned this to you in the past that given the people that we talk to and their names are all listed in the back of the book, if they can't tell us what the trend is going to be coming up in the next couple of years, I'm not sure who can because they're the ones that are making this. Before we go on, tell people where they can find it. Because I feel like this is the kind of thing, because of the detail, you almost want to pull this up if you're listening right now hit pause, go find the report and open it up and then we'll talk through it kind of chronologically or page sure. by page so that people can kind of read along while we're discussing the, the hot topics. Sure. So it's digital naturally. And if you just go to pwc.com backslash CA backslash emerging trends, it'll get you there. We'll also throw it in the show notes too, a link to the website that Frank just mentioned. So if you're driving right now, don't try and write <laughs> that down. It'll be available for you. But it is... No, no, no. It, Pull over, park your car. <laughs> get right down to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the episode will be listenable for sure without it, but it will be enhanced with it. I would recommend it. I enjoy reading it every single year. For anybody as well that's driving and, and just wants to get the 10-second summary, last year was Beds and Sheds. This year is beds and sheds on steroids. That's the basic message in the report. But if you do have uh, you know, 45 minutes to spare, we'll get into more details of that. We just lost half our listeners. They're like, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> just, well, there's, it, you know, while those are the best bets, there's a lot of really interesting and different things that did come out in this year's report, which I look forward to kind of exploring. Okay, well, let's get to it. Go ahead, Adam, you first. Yeah, the number one, I mean, I, you, know, you go through the report, and a lot of interesting stuff catches your eye, but We'll go to the ones that really were most interesting. For those following along at home, 1.1, 1. 1, 
it's a trend back to 2009 on uh, buy, hold, sell recommendations. A lot of turmoil if you go back to you know post uh, 2009. But since things stabilized from that recession, pretty steady on the buy, hold, sell recommendations. However, you will see that the sell has fallen off the cliff and hold has fallen off the cliff very, very recently. Was that surprising to you, Frank? Not really. I think that sounds, you know, that that's aligned with what we were hearing naturally from our individuals. There's still a lot of uncertainty, Adam, in the marketplace. So those kind of data points were kind of in line. It doesn't surprise me in terms of what we're seeing with respect to that kind of buy, hold, or sell mentality. Clearly, what I think those graphs are telling you is as they are converging is that price discovery era that we're in right now. So you've got people that think their asset is worth X and buyers that think that it's worth Y. And right now, that's probably a function of why we're not seeing as much transaction activity because we're in that kind of price discovery as they kind of converge. And it's interesting that the hold has kind of dropped off the cliff, as you could see. And it's probably centered around certain asset classes, right, that are driving that. You know, clearly, if you're in retail, people want to sell and get out of it but just don't have the ability. If you're in the beds and sheds, to use your words, you know they definitely want to hold off because this is what I'd call a theme, an investment theme that is probably going to play out over the long term, just given the big shift that we're seeing amongst consumers, the driving of e-commerce, which ultimately it plays into that really strong industrial segment. And, and again, on the re- residential, we don't have to talk about because we know it's so strong here in, in, in Canada. Yeah, and I throw hospitality in there too. I'm assuming there's there's a lot of listings for hotels right now that are on the market that will probably contributing to that plunge in holds. Exactly. You know, for anybody I, not familiar with real estate lingo, price discovery means we don't know the price of anything, <laughs> <laughs> or, or we're trying to find out what the true price is. <laughs> Get to a yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, is the cap rate a four or a seven? Nobody knows right now. Right? That's the challenge. And that kind of leads into the next section that I thought was really interesting. I can't explain it, Frank, so I'm just going to throw it to you. This business prospects for 2021 versus 2020, you got commercial real estate developers at the bottom and residential developers at the top. Maybe just expand on why or what you think that would indicate. So residential prospects at the top, I think, is actually played out. So think about where we were at when we did that. Is that apartments and condos included? Are you talking about single family or is it everything? It's pretty much anything that covers low-rise, high-rise development. So that typically now purpose-built rental will fall into that for sure. So that's what covers off that particular segment. And so there's no surprise because if you see later on, you know, one of the best bets that are in there is single-family housing rental, right? If you see it's way up at the top. And again, that is just a function of the whole residential market. And we've had this conversation last year, even the year before, that this is at the top of the market. People are really seeing that this is a resilient asset segment. And so that's why there's so much more development that's going on. And then all you really have to do is take a look at what's happened in July, August, and September in the low-rise area. The development has just blown out all expectations. And talking to a lot of the developers there, you know, they are having record years, especially outside of the greater Toronto area. And I'm just talking about GTA because it's the largest market, but it's consistent right across, generally consistent right across Canada. So absolutely no surprise that that's at the top end of the prospects for development, just because those asset classes are so strong, they're resilient, 
and there's a lot of opportunities. Something interesting I noticed about this as well is, yeah, Aaron highlighted, of course, residential and commercial up ends of the spectrum, but everything in between, real estate lenders, real estate owners, real estate equity investors, real estate services, people don't think that 2021 will be much different than 2020. Is that reflective of the bulk of 2020 being you know, a somewhat down market? I think oh, it's sorry, refl- before, sorry, it's that. Like, when did the survey finish? I think it's context yep. from yep. where we are in the world of COVID and absolutely. how people's psyches have changed. So can you just give a time frame of the survey so that people can sure. hold on? Sure. So absolutely. So we tried to hang on as late as possible. We started the survey in June, at, you know, at the tail end of June. And so it was June, July, and then we left it open as much as we could in August because of just the changing dynamics. And so that then we had enough time to get it published and released in early October. So it's really that time period of June to we'll call it middle of August that covers all these interviews. Okay, great. Okay. So more or less reflective of what we're experiencing today. And just again, for context, we always do this. It's Friday, November 6th. So we're about eight weeks from when you kind of close the survey results. Okay. Okay, great. Okay. Sorry, keep going. And so Adam, to your question, I think it's because most real estate people are glass half full individuals. Everything's everything's always good. But the reality is there's not... When we were talking to these executives, while there was a lot of uncertainty, and I know we'll talk about because that was one of the big themes in, in this coming out of it, there was a lot of uncertainty. They still felt good about the market. And that's because going into this We'll call it crises, this health crises. We were in a really good spot. Supply and demand was at a good spot. Mortgage rates were at all time low. Lots of liquidity and capital in the market. So I think that kind of feeling still lingered amongst most of the real estate individuals. And so that's why when I looked at this, to be quite honest, I was actually surprised too to see that it was as good and in some cases even better for 2021. Maybe part of the psyche is, well, it can't be any worse than 2020. We shut down the economy. It's got to get better, right? And given that there wasn't a, a, it's not a liquidity crisis, it's not an economic crisis, I think those are part, I think, was embedded in terms of the results that came out. So that's more of a, of a dark take on that, but uh, <laughs> I don't disagree that, that you might be, uh, might be correct. Uh, the next one we're going to take a look at for anybody following along is 1.3. And this shows real estate capital market balance forecast, compares 2020 to 2021, because of course we are looking forward. And there's been a bit of a shift on the equity side, but not a major shift, but the portion that's most noticeable is in 2020, only 6% of people thought capital equity specifically was undersupplied. Now 32% do. So that is quite a dramatic shift. The other two categories, imbalance and oversupplied, there are some shifts as well, but that's what really stands out to me. We are coming from an environment, we're talking pre-COVID here, where the market was flush with equity. So if there is an issue with diminished equity, is that actually a major issue for the market? Is there a risk there won't be capital for deals? Or could it be a return to more historical levels, which uh, might even be indicative of a healthier market? Yeah, you know, that was an interesting observation there, Adam. And my take of that was that I think the capital was much more prudent. I don't think that the amount of capital that is chasing real estate has diminished per se. I think just the amount of it being deployed is that much more prudent these days because there are funds that are being set up right now that are going to be opportunistic funds because they believe that there's going to be distressed real estate and people have have seen that there's lots of opportunities that are going to emerge coming out of this health crisis because of the impact that it's had. And so every indication that we've talked 
there is plenty of dry powder. The amount that's going to be deployed, significantly less, because I think people are just going to be that much more prudent. So it's interesting the way this is laid out, but I my take on this is there's capital, much more balanced, but much more prudent in terms of its allocation right now. Let me jump into the debt capital because that forms the sort of the equities or the, the capital stack, so to speak. I'm going to jump through this quick. I mean, of course, Adam and I are lenders, so we obviously gravitate towards this, right? But I mean, it looks like nothing's really changed on the debt side. I mean, there's some movement, but I can tell you from Adam and I sitting inside the largest commercial lender in the country, there is a lot of debt opportunities. Of course, if you if you start splitting it up between retail and industrial, certainly there's, there's way more appetite for the industrial, way more conservative lending, but you can still yep. find financing yep. for your retail assets. It's just it's at 50% leverage and full recourse, not where it was a year ago. And you're, and you're probably paying a 5, 10, 20 basis point premium for that lender to take that risk on that particular asset class. But let's keep moving because I think there's a lot of interesting things in here. Although Adam and I would love to just talk about the debt side of it all day long anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And remember, these are the interviewees' perspectives for what they're going to see in 2021, right? And so they've got all these things that are dancing around in their heads in terms of what's going on. But I agree with you, plenty of debt capital out there, I think, for... But would you not agree, Aaron, that it's probably bifurcated now to the quality versus maybe the nice-to-haves, right? That's the sense I got in talking to them, saying if you're a good quality credit, great long-standing relationships, there's plenty there for you. If you're new at the table or trying something different, well, that might be a little different. And that was a trend that was occurring before COVID. Lenders were starting to be really more relationship-focused, right? Yeah. Particularly on the banking side, right? The banks were already kind of really gravitating that way where they had their 10 top clients and they would get the best pricing possible. If you weren't one of those 10, maybe it's 20, whatever, it was going to be a struggle. And, and that's, that just speaks to the reputation re- requirements within real estate. That's whether you're a Absolutely. broker or a leasing agent or a lender, it's all about the people that you know and trust that will execute, that will stand by their word, and that, that will do what they say they will do. And I think lending was getting more and more that way. Less commoditized, really, is the way you you're want to put it. Absolutely it, it, right. Yeah, It's becoming less and less about interest rates and loan proceeds and more about who do I trust will be there. From a lending side too, right? I want my, to make sure my lender is going to show up at the closing table because that's three quarters of my purchase price, right? Or whatever it is. So Absolutely. And I think all of this has just been amplified. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And let's keep moving. So the next one that I thought was really interesting was the emerging opportunities in alternative assets. We've talked about single family and rental housing. So I think that I think that's self-explanatory probably. I mean, self-storage, we've had that conversation before. I think that, I don't know if that's a, for sure, it's an alternative asset. I'm not sure it's an emerging opportunity. Again, at First National, we've been one of the largest self-storage lenders for a long time. But let's talk about the life sciences component to this and just what that means. I mean, I guess that encompasses a whole bunch of different things, medical offices, retirement homes. What were you hearing during your interviews? So I think what was happening and what we we're hearing in our interviews, and, and I'd have to say this was more coming from the institutional investor versus we'll call it the private investor. We heard this a lot more. And the comment that we heard there is that as they looked to reallocate and pivot, to use maybe that word, their capital in asset classes that they didn't see have such a long runway, the message that we heard is from a purely demographic perspective, and given that we were in the midst of this pandemic and the view was that, you know what, this is maybe the first of more to come in the future, that they thought that this was a perfect area as an alternative asset class to put some money in and repurposing 
again, coming back to reimagining the real estate and repurposing assets that could accommodate the life sciences, we'll call it tenants type, right? Because really, we're talking about real estate. Now you're going after almost a segment of it being life sciences that may include medical offices, will include labs for research, et cetera. So that was the conversation that we had. And it's interesting, there have been a number of transactions recently predominantly more in the U.S., they're all focused around this kind of life sciences area. I think that's going to kind of spill over here as well. But it was really interesting that that conversation kind of was moving towards saying, look, we need to take capital off the table in these classes because we don't think they're going. We need a niche. One of the niche areas is life sciences. Now, coming back to the conversation about divergent views, there's others that say, in this time of uncertainty, it's even more important to double down on what you know and what you know well, as opposed to getting to niche and niche asset classes. Because we raised it, you know, is this a good time to pivot and find new asset classes? So again, divergent views. It's funny you mentioned recent transactions, because while you were speaking, I was wondering how deep the market is for, for life sciences space, like how many square feet could actually transact in a year. But I guess one other element too is, you know, a portion of this would also be government funded and in an absence of reliable tenants in an uncertain market, government should be reliable throughout, which would be uh, one other interesting aspect of it. I think you're right. I'm not sure that it's very deep in the U.S. much more. I know that there's uh, hubs in Boston, definitely on the West Coast in L.A. There's clearly opportunities there in, in those particular areas on the research side and lab side. So I think the, the cluster like here in Montreal, there's some areas where you could find find that, but I wouldn't disagree. It's not a very deep, deep market in the Canadian landscape right now. Up next, I want to talk to you about forecast net migration. I mean, migration is an interesting one right now in that all our predictable behaviors have been disrupted because of COVID-19. It's been a hot topic. I know that Trudeau just recently announced that they are going to accelerate immigration over the next few years to uh, try and patch up this missing year. But the theme, of course, that came out of this, and this is actually, this will be ongoing from now until we're done talking about this, is the top three cities for migration, as in will be the top three for many, many categories coming up, is Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. The acronym MTV appeared a couple of years ago and appears to, you know, to continue to gain momentum supported yeah. by the data. And interestingly, there are also only three cities that are seeing negative net migration intercity, you know, meaning the locals are leaving or heading to the far suburbs. That is a common theme amongst all city, but they are big winners in interprovincial and international. So as a whole, there are very strong migration numbers, especially Toronto, the predominant favorite in terms of where people are going to end up living. Yeah. And this is no different than what we've seen south of the border with movement out of what I call the the gateway cities into those 18-hour cities like Raleigh, North Carolina and Austin, Texas. And so, you know, I think there's a couple of factors at play here. Clearly, affordability is one for sure that people are to use. If we go back a couple of years, you know, you drive until you qualify and find homes that you can't afford in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. So you got to go out. So we're seeing that. And I think what people, you know, this is based on data, and I'm not sure that they captured the full impact of this work or would have captured the impact of this work from home. I suspect that those are going to be even bigger in the future because I think what we're hearing, and this is based on even employee surveys that we've had, that post-COVID, that whole work from home, they're anticipating a lot 
more than versus spending time in the office. So if I could buy a home outside of the GTA, have some more space, some green space, and only have to commute in once or maybe twice a week, I'll do that. And so it's not that taxing on you to do that, to kind of come in. And so I think that going forward, we're going to see this trend, Adam, I believe in the future, there's going to be even more. I think we'll see that continued. And if we're following what's happening south of the border, I think if we put the US one up, you would see an even more significant one coming out of the big the big cities and into those what I'd call smaller urban, call it 18-hour cities. You know, Frank, it'll be, it will be really interesting. And I fight this, and I'll be honest, from a personal note, my wife and I for sure have talked about moving from what is effectively the city of Toronto in, in South Etobicoke out to Vaughan or whatever. And do I really need to be closed? The only reason I live here is because I'm a 15-minute drive from downtown and a 20-minute go train ride. And is that really a reason to live where you live? And why not go somewhere where you get big backyard or what have you? So, And I keep fighting it saying, no, no, COVID's temporary. COVID's temporary. We'll move out to Vaughan and in two years, this will all be gone. And I'll be angry that I'm spending two hours commuting downtown <laughs> because it's mandatory that you got to be in the office nine to five again. So it is very interesting how that dynamic will play itself out. And the duration of COVID, of course, will, will really have an impact. I want to jump to the rise of ESG. I mean, Adam and our regular listeners will know it's something that I, I love. And I've, I've not love, I'm very interested in and just how that is impacting the real estate community. And, you know, one of the themes that constantly comes up as we talk about it is lip service versus truly walking the walk. And I'm just interested in what your perspective is and what kind of commentary you received during your interviews? I think that the ESG conversation has definitely risen high up on the agenda of the CEO and C-suite, without a doubt. Each and every single year, I've definitely seen that. But I would make a couple of comments. I think ESG right now, when we talk about institutional investors, is top of mind. It's not lip service. It is genuine action. And for a number of reasons, one, because they need to do the right thing, but two, also, if they don't, it'll impact the value of their assets and their assets that they hold. And the real estate are all long-term assets. So it is something that is definitely on the institutional side, significantly more important. I think when I say the privates and you know home developers and, and things like that, I'm not going to say it's not important to them, but I think their view is if someone had to choose a house between house A and house B, and this one costs uh, $10,000 more because it's greener, are they going to buy that? And their view is no. So I think that's, that's the reality for that kind of space. And so it has a lot less traction. But at the institutional investor level, significantly more important. The other thing that I would share with you is that I think Canada lags Europe. So if you go to Europe and you look at the investors there, they are all over this agenda. They are all over and the investors are really pushing the owners on this particular agenda topic. And so you got a lot more funds in Europe that are focused around ESG investing. You're starting to hear a number of them here. I think uh, Dream uh, announced publicly that they started an impact fund, which was all around ESG. And there's a number of other institutional investors that are increasing, you know, have issued green bonds. So you're seeing a lot more happening in the Canadian landscape. But my observation compared to my conversations with my colleagues in Europe is, you know, Canada is still a little bit behind in that arena, but it is moving fast. 
Well, you mentioned there as well, you know, valuation specifically being affected by this. That would not have been true five years ago. It was something that institutions and privates would have paying some attention to without a doubt, but in terms of actual valuations, I would argue that uh, was not there. You're absolutely right. So it was interesting. I was at a real estate conference. I'd say I'm going to date myself, but it was probably eight or nine years ago, and it was in Europe, and there was a speaker on at the podium talking about how you had to definitely embed ESG, and specifically, it was much more about sustainability and greening the buildings. Otherwise, and again, I'm going to borrow the words that they used back then saying, if you don't, your building will have a brown discount versus a green premium. And in the long term, you will not be able to realize on the full value of that property if you're not there. And that was way ahead of the time. And I said, you know, this is just sounds like it's all kind of what I call coverings around here or just to kind of make things nice. I, I didn't think it was something that would stick, but I could tell you through my conversations with our global teams and our global investors and all that, it is definitely being baked in and being significantly more important. And I think for those organizations that say, yeah, this is just a trend and this is not really going to impact the value of my portfolio, they're going to be in for a rude awakening because it is definitely going to play into valuations going forward. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. The next part of the report we want to talk to you about is investments in PropTech. This is Exhibit 1-8 for anybody following along at home. And it does show that investment had been skyrocketing and then 2020 was flat from a record setting 2019. But I don't think that that's an indication of lack of faith in PropTech. But the few areas highlighted here that there would be being accelerated during COVID solutions to ensure business continuity. And for this one, I want to defer to Aaron because he is in operations at First National and every large corporation for sure had conversations about business continuity prior to 2020, but had probably not had a real life test. This is not a drill kind of moment until 2020. So I actually can ask Aaron to comment on the process of maintaining business continuity in a very short transition period while we all switch to work from home. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. And I'll admit, I don't know what the root regulations are. I'm going to assume it's OSFI or something to that, like some sort of federal regulation. So Frank, you chime in if you know the answer. But BCP, business continuity planning, and the type of reporting that you have to do are very restrictive. They used to call them SOC 1s. And I I don't know what SOC 1 stood for, but I just I knew it was something that we had to have. And it's actually (laughs) become even more robust now. And everybody had it on their radar years and years and years ago. I'm not sure pandemic was kind of in there as a prescribed potential risk. I think they were more thinking about world global wars and or you know catastrophic events, whether it be weather or or what have you. Curiously, I mean I'm sure it did benefit. I'm sure everybody benefited from going through that exercise. But a lot of that BCP was where do you go off site? Well if you can't get to your office, where do you go? And it, we didn't actually end up going to where we had, you know, an off site servers and things. We just went home. I'm not sure everybody anticipated the ability and the flexibility and the ease of which you could transition. I mean, First National's experiences, as we've talked to Frank and, and your, like yourself and, and other leaders in the industry, everybody seemed to have a relatively easy transition. There was a couple of weeks of headaches, but within mm-hmm. two or three weeks, everybody was up and running and off they went. And I'm not sure that was really built into our BCP, right? I don't think that was something that was really prescribed or expected or anticipated. And I feel like First National is not alone in that surprised that it was that easy, quite frankly. <laughs> Just lock the front door. Everybody goes home. Is that the uh, the PCP? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think people, what the pandemic did do, you're right. So for, for many, it was fairly seamless. Others, 
maybe struggled a little bit more, but what it did do for sure is put a bright light on how important digitizing your business. And you know, we've had this conversation, Aaron and Adam, in the past saying how real estate investors have been the laggards of adopting technology. So it's like we've been talking about this for a long time. And over the last couple of years, we've seen their investments in technology increase more and more. But this light was shone brightly on how important to really move your business. And I could tell you some of even very large institutional public companies who were still what I'd call maybe old school in terms of deals and paper and all that kind of stuff, that all disappeared and it had to disappear of necessity. And that is that theme that came up in our prop tech, because I know you started off here, is about this necessity versus the fear of missing out. And I want to go back to that graph because yes, it tailed off, but I think the part that's missing, the trajectory that that was going on, the expectations were that in 2020, if we went back with something like 12 billion, so it was supposed to kind of move up like that hockey stick to 12 billion, and all of a sudden it just kind of flatlined at 8 billion. And I think what happened there was last year, it was all about that FOMO of fear of missing out on the next unicorn that's in the Proctet world. Whereas this year, people, when I talk to them and specifically ask a lot of these institutional investors are saying, are you still investing in PropTech? And they said, yes, but it's much more conservative. It's going to be focused around things that will make an impact on operations, business resilience, and all that kind of stuff. That's where the focus is. So that's probably why we saw that little tail off right now and why we're seeing a lot of these real estate companies really embrace technology and embrace digitization because they have to. It's of necessity now, right? There's no no two ways about it. And it's really interesting. Like I talked to the real estate developers. Now, the whole concept, you know, you needed to have someone come in to review to buy a house. No, it's all done digitally. You know, whether it's using VR, there's very limited interaction needed. And it hasn't impacted their sales going forward. I mean, I've got a specific example, which I think is probably reflective of what a lot of companies were experiencing. Yeah, we had the process of getting DocuSign embedded into our systems we had it probably on our list of, for 18 months. It was always about back burner thing. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. There's right. always things that would bubble forward. Of course, as soon as you get home and all your execution, your document signers are away, what are you going to do? So implemented DocuSign. It took us about two and a half weeks. So, so yeah. I mean, imagine how quick it was. We should have just done that a year and a half earlier, but we did it. Right. Now we're whatever it is, seven, eight months in. And, I, and, I, and I'm one of the, the signatories. And I've signed 3,500 documents in that eight-month period. And if some of those documents are 50, 60 pages, some are two or three, let's average it out at 15. That's 55,000 pieces of paper that haven't been printed now just in the last seven or eight months. So I could sign it so they could scan it and send it back in. So I mean, that's a prop tech thing. That's a small investment that has had massive implications. And then there's an environmental contingency to that too. Because I, I don't know what 55,000 pages equals, but it's probably at least one tree. I, I don't, I don't well, know. Aaron, we, we don't have any printers anymore. So, you know, when COVID hit and we went full on digital, our PwC did all the right things in terms of ensuring the safety and they reevaluated, you know, how we wanted the house to look. And they're saying, well, now you're going to be remote. We had DocuSign in place and and they said, well, you know what? We're just going to rip out all the printers. So I went back after they opened the office. There's not one printer available in our office anymore. And, you know, accountants print a lot of paper. So (laughs) So do lenders for some reason. Reading an environmental report or an appraisal report feels better in in paper. But but nevertheless, before we move on, I just want to shout out to Courtney Cooper, who's the last guest of Elite Partners, who really... It runs this sort of joint venture. Oh, I know Courtney really well. I know yeah, Courtney okay, very cool. well. I feel obligated to just give her the props because 
in this environment where there seems to be less engagement in, in prop tech, she's out there fighting the good fight to make sure that the real estate community continues to keep up with the rest of the corporate world. Absolutely. We'll, we'll put her episode in the show notes too, for anybody who wants to hear 45 minutes dedicated just to investment in prop tech. The next segment we want to talk for anybody following a home 1.9 is real estate disruptors. There's, there's a lot of cool things at the top of the list, but I want to zero in at second from the bottom blockchain. If I could go back and edit out our podcast, Aaron and I have talked a lot about blockchain over the last couple of years. About it's revolutionary. It's going to change the world. Yeah, and that here, here I see this real estate industry disruptors, and it's you know second from the bottom in terms of I guess interest levels or probability of revolutionizing our world. So I was a little surprised to see that there, but that's okay. We'll look at the top of the list though: construction technology, cybersecurity. These all make perfect sense just from a business case. There's significant savings or profitability that can be enhanced with investment in these areas. So it's going to attract a lot of attention. You know, not too surprising at all. In, in the rest of the list here, Frank, is there any, any surprises or anything that really stood out? Yeah, there, there are, and I'll, and I'll walk you through, but I want to come back to blockchain. I think it's way down there because one, it's still early in the game, and two, a lot of people still don't understand it. I think there's a lot of opportunity for it, and I think we may see this kind of edge up over the years when it becomes more what I'd call normal course, but I think it's still early in the day. The biggest surprise for me, and maybe just the way it was cut and diced, again, these are my point of view in terms of what I'm seeing in the market, but this is what our interviewees told us, is big data analytics. I can tell you every single conversation that we have right now is about data and data analytics. And at PwC, we even have an entire group that's just focused on analytics that is focused around that because as companies digitize, they're getting more and more information at their fingertips. Their question is, what do I do with this? And how do I use this information to make even better investment decisions, better development decisions, et cetera. So that one kind of, it's high up there, but I'm surprised that it was not like number one because everyone that we've talked to are saying that's what they want to do. They want to now have, they have this, what I call this beautiful piece of a golden nugget in their organization, which is all this data that was disparate before. Now, how do I take that and really bring value out of it? So that's the one for me that was a little bit, I'm saying moderate importance. I would have thought it'd be significantly higher. Yeah, Aaron's a big proponent of, uh, of big data at First uh, National. So I'm sure he would he would agree with that one. So something else to be new on this list this year, 5G implementation, just because of course, you know, 5G is being rolled out. And I think this week they're, or sorry, last week they're rolling out all the new iPhones that are 5G compatible. So you, you got to think that in your 2022 report, 2023 report, that uh, 5G will be moving up from the mid ranks of the moderately important to considerably more important. Right. Exactly. And, you know, workplace automation, the conversations right now, the big conversations that we're having right now with our clients is about the future of finance. So what does the future of finance going to look like? And a lot of it involves one piece of it, this whole workplace automation. Is there a better way to automate tasks, mind-blowing tasks, like where you got to tick and bop certain things? And if you can get, whether it's a, an automated procedure to do that, why not do that? So that whole workplace automation is a conversation that we are definitely having. I think that's going to start to kind of edge up as well because they need to find ways to be much more efficient more effective in that whole finance area. And again, it's a top of mind conversation that we're having with the CFOs and the CEOs of organizations as well. Yeah. I mean, to Adam's point, we could probably talk about big data for the entire podcast just as a subcategory, but 
I want to keep moving. We're, I think, 35 minutes in or so, and we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. So let's just keep plowing through. These importance of issues for real estate in 2021, I think, is, is really kind of interesting. And rather than talking about what's at the top, what's at the bottom, maybe we'll just talk about new items that weren't on this list last year, Frank, that things that have all of a sudden popped up. I mean, they may not be in the top or, or the bottom, but but they're just new. Do you have any comments about those items? Well, no surprise, epidemics and pandemics jumped right to the top given yeah. when, we re- when we did this. <laughs> but you know, it's funny, if you go back to the 2020 report, it was there. So it was a, a concern, but it wasn't nowhere near the top, right? But it clearly jumped in it. It's no surprise because when we were doing this in June and July, we were right in, the, right in the thick of it. But in terms of the economic and financial issues that you see there, there was nothing really that kind of was shocking. Job and income growth was always the most important item. I think the noise with all the tariff wars and the kind of you know stuff that we're hearing with the US and China and all of that, it resonated with executives. And it's there in the back of their mind to saying, you know, if that's going to have an impact on the global currencies and rates, because we're such an integrated global economy now. So that was concerning as well. So, so they don't kind of surprise me that they're that high based on all the conversations that we had with our interviewees. The other area that you'll notice that kind of probably had a fairly sizable jump is racial inequality, which sits in the social political issues, right? And again, no surprise there, just given the news and what was going on around, specifically in the US, but but around the world. So that that item is just reflective of the times, I think, that we're seeing and hearing about. Well, one other area I noticed in here too, and it actually relates to conversation we were having earlier, you know, review of this report. Under economic financial issues, number three, capital availability. You know, that for sure relates back to what we discussed, that there is substantial concern that the equity will be diminished from the year previous and debt slightly so. And I've got to think the capital availability in the previous few years reports would have been way further down the list. I don't think people were thinking about that. It was The discussion was all about lack of opportunities, not lack of capital. Yeah, you're right, Adam. But the thing is, there's lots of capital, as you know, that's available. The question is right now, I think people are much more prudent in the deployment. So I think their question is, if this pandemic extends for a period of time, I think people will become even maybe more cautious. And maybe then that becomes the real issue in terms of the capital availability, right? So I suspect that's where that is coming from based on what we're hearing. I'm going to make a prediction and no way of holding me to this, but I I suspect that risk from extreme weather at the very bottom for the development issues will no longer be at the bottom in a year or two from now. That's one of those topics that seems to be rising in, yeah. in the consciousness of the real estate leaders as we seem to see more extreme, extreme environments, extreme weather conditions, whether it's floods or forest fires or, of course, hurricanes and things like that. And I'll preface or I'll, I'll back that up with that's going to be driven by the insurance market. And you know, all of a sudden, if you can't, yeah. get, you can't get insurance for properties that are in a floodplain, uh, all of yep. a sudden, that, that potential risk is going to rise. Let's exactly. keep moving. And if you have any comments, let's keep moving. I think those are good. The next one on the list is 112. This is e-commerce penetration rates in Canada. And so I was a little surprised by this because you read the argument against e-commerce saying that, yes, it is growing rapidly, but it's still only, I don't know the exact percentage, but I feel like it's low teens percentage of the overall retail market. But this breaks down category by category, the penetration rates in Canada for e-commerce and the the categories at the top, clothing, books, music, consumer electronics, they're ranging from 35 to 46%, like almost half 
which I was shocked to know it was that high. I mean, unless I'm missing something in this data, is that accurate, Frank? Well, we got that data from uh, Digital Markets Outlook. So it's not something that we PwC did ourselves, but we knew as part of our interview process, people were saying, look, this is what's driving the industrial segment versus the downfall is the e-commerce penetration. So we went out and got the data. So it's as good as the data that we got this from, which is Statista, I think, Digital Market Outlook. And it was recently updated in September of 2020 when we got that. So it's reflective of that particular results. So one of the more interesting things, or maybe not, like I'm actually just going to pose this to you, Frank. Take that prospect for commercial multifamily sectors or subsectors in 2021, which is a it's a chart that we've spent a lot of time on in the past. Because I think we at first, I, to be quite honest, I think it was two years ago I saw the word fulfillment for the very first time, and we actually talked about what does fulfillment mean and what is that. And I think now it's just a regular buzzword in the industry. Do you see anything that really surprised you with this list? Is there a subsector that you thought would be a lot higher? Or is this kind of, given the context of COVID and what's transpiring in the economy, is probably fairly reflective of what you would think you would see? I think this was reflective of what we thought and what we definitely heard, naturally. I think when I look at this, one that kind of jumped out, which is new, and I'm not sure if you've noticed, is the whole single-family rental. In Canada, at least, it wasn't a big item. In the U.S., it's much more, it's a market that's much more uh, what I call matured. And you have some huge institutional investors like Brookfield and Blackstone that have had done major, Blackstone specifically has done some major investments in, in this area. So when I saw it here in Canada and single family rental, that was one kind of was quite interesting. And this may be a reflection of what we're talking about earlier and, and what COVID is doing in terms of how people will look to work in the future, possibly, and maybe needing to move out and gain a, a function of affordability as well to saying, I still can't afford, I still can't afford that home, but I do want a home because I do need more space. And so if you're asking me, that's probably one that was of interest to me. Fulfillment warehouse and medical office was always up there. The moderate income workforce apartment buildings, again, that's right in that whole residential area, which we know the beds and sheds that you started off right at the very beginning of this talk. It doesn't surprise me that it's again up at the top. And then when you look at what's at the bottom, those are no surprises. It's the hotels, which is the hospitality industry, the regional malls, which we've been talking about for the last couple of years. So there isn't anything really there that surprised me. I will point out, though, that yeah, obviously luxury hotels and student housing is at the bottom, but the scale that this uses, it starts at the top, five out of five is an excellent, and then bottom ranking is an angry red color, one, and the word abysmal, which is kind of a scary word. If you think that your real estate prospects are abysmal, there's not a single asset that ends up in the abysmal category. So I think that even in the worst performing assets right now, it would not be ranked as abysmal, which I think is a good sign. Right. I think that for those assets, one of the things that we've been hearing, you know, and you see at the bottom there, like regional malls and things like that, which are you know at the bottom of that list, I think people are looking at how they're going to pivot and reimagine that real estate and whether they put some mixed use mixed use real estate with with some you know residential condos like it's interesting i just got a, off a call today with someone in the kitchener waterloo area and, and there's a project in cambridge that has this kind of mall and now they went back and got a zoning change and there's going to be condos there mid-rise along with retail so i think we're going to start to see more and more as people kind of re reimagine some of their retail spaces and how they can bring value to them one last comment before we move on and i'll throw it back to you but 
I'm sure there are listeners and real estate investment companies that look at this and go, awesome. Okay, so you guys have fun battling it out for fulfillment. I'm now pivoting to student housing where there's no competition. Well, related to that, Aaron, it's actually funny. This is a good lead in here. For uh, 1.14, this is investment recommendations, just the classic buy, hold, sell trifecta, and is sorted by the highest percentage of buy recommendations down to the lowest. And this would reflect literally the chart we just discussed previously. You got out of a bunch of apartments at the top, medical office at the top, and then down at the bottom, of course, you got power centers. And that was, I'm sure, the exact same setup as last year. But then right in the middle, in the number six spot, on the buy recommendation, we have hotels. There's a, apparently a strong inclination to buy hotels. I know the people talking, there will be a considerable amount of larger groups buying smaller groups in hotels during this pandemic. But why do you think that hotels is the bottom of so many other lists, but here it's got a strong buy rating? Adam, if I told you I knew, I'd be <laughs> lying. <laughs> so if you think about most of these, and it's upscale hotels, you think about what drives a lot of these, it's travel. And we know the travel is on a halt right now. So interesting. And I think the issue might be that, or coming at it from a different perspective, that there's going to be some distress in this area. And if you have the ability, you might be able to pick up some of these hotels that on the cheap, we'll call it, that can then turn around when things go back to normal, could turn around a reasonable return. But that one there confused me as well a little bit. We're pushing almost an hour, Frank. And so we're I'm sensitive to our listeners' time and your time as well. But I think maybe we'll move on to maybe just some of the jurisdictions and I'll, I'll leave this open for you just to comment about your thoughts. Just if there's anything interesting you saw about how your survey or your interviews reacted to different neighborhoods, cities around the country, and if there's anything of surprise to you. No, again, the, um, I think the big thing, and you mentioned it early on, Aaron, was you know MTV is up at the top again in terms of the investment and development prospects to kind of look at at the future. And you know I think the concept there is never, I would always bet on Toronto. I'd always bet on Vancouver and Montreal. You're not, there's not going to be big issues. I think what we heard a little bit more though this year is that there is interest in what I call the, some of the more suburban suburban urban markets that they have individuals kind of taking a closer look at clearly for prospects. And all you have to do is kind of take a look at what's happening in the US. And I think we've had this conversation in the past before where there's a huge exodus, not a huge exodus, maybe take that back, but there's an exodus of people out of these big gateway cities into these urban centers. And what's happening there is, you know, good jobs are following there. Good businesses are going there and it's creating like this urban new vibe that people want to be at. And so it's creating a lot of good real estate opportunities. If I were to tell you that large institutional investors were looking at Tempe, Arizona or a, or a rally North Carolina, you'd say, no, that's, they don't. They're Boston, they're LA, they're New York, they're et cetera. But I can tell you that there are these institutional investors that are looking at these kind of what I call secondary markets that have a lot of potential because of what's going to happen in terms of where they believe they're in their investment themes where people are going to go and want to live and want to work and play. And so if they're, it's going to drive good potential investment returns, probably better investment returns than paying a huge cap rate for, for something in a big gateway city. Well, to me, to kind of counter that, there's a couple of, couple of slides in a row where MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, 
our top three markets to watch, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, views of their own local markets. This is measures the way the local residents view the prospects of their city. And top of the heap is Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and then forecast economic growth. Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. So it is maybe it is a lot of hot air being blown by the residents of the city. Who knows? But uh, we, won't, we won't jump too far into it. The last piece we're going to talk about here is best bets. So this, of course, would be people that, despite the concerns that maybe there's not capital availability, they they want to put some money into real estate. So not surprisingly, top of the list, warehousing and Aaron's new word, fulfillment. That would have been the case uh, last year as well. And if I'm sure if we went back to the year before, likely was the top. And multifamily residential, as we said at the start of this, beds and sheds continue to dominate. And uh, not surprisingly, that's where you should be placing your money. The third one on the list, of course, is medical office. And you, you have to refresh my memory, uh, of Frank. Was medical office on its best bets the last couple of years? It was. Surprisingly, it, it has been up there. There's just a lot more talk about it this year as well. But if you, I think if you go back to 2020, and I bet you will, <laughs> medical offices was up near the top. And I know that because even last year when I looked at it, I'm saying medical offices, it just didn't resonate with me in terms of being such a deep asset class that people would want to invest in. Now, you have to remember, these are interviews right across Canada, but also dip into the US as well, but in terms of where they think there's these opportunities. But lo and behold, it's here in our expected best bets. And that's what our interviewees are telling us. And for the most part, they've been pretty good. It's got to be demographic driven, right? It's, it's, yes, it's baby boomers sure. as they get older need more medical assistance. And Absolutely, need more office space to have more uh, testing done. And absolutely, right? that's that. That is the investment thesis, exactly. Well, thanks, Frank. I really appreciate you coming on. Reminder to our listeners that Adam and I are going to do the commercial real estate podcast after show as soon as the song finishes. Frank, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to maybe just wrap up? Just what the overall theme was, or anything interesting that you want to make sure that you get across to our listeners. First of all, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's always a lot of fun with both of you and love talking real estate. I think you've we've covered and have gone deep in a lot of ones. And you know, one of the items that I wanted to kind of just kind of come back and broad themes that came out of this, one was COVID had because we did these interviews during COVID, and one of the biggest themes that we heard is that COVID it was almost like an accelerator to the existing themes that were there. So that's one thing that we heard loud and clear. So whether it was the prop tech side, whether it was the e-commerce and, and kind of driving a bigger wedge between retail and industrial, whether it was office and what was happening to office, COVID clearly has accelerated some themes that were embedded in there and that were going to happen. So that was one big broad one. We talked about the prop tech necessity versus FOMO. So those were the big themes that we had chatted. And I was talking to Adam earlier on that for me this year, what was really interesting is we interviewed 200 executives plus When we had those conversations, yes, we talked about uncertainty in the past, and it was always, though, consistent, whereas this year, there was still that conversation of uncertainty, but there was really big divergence. So whether we were talking about urbanization versus suburbanization, or whether we were talking about the realities of office, you know, is it going to survive? Is it going to suffer? There were different camps. And that was something that I hadn't experienced in the last three, four years. It was always, there was always usually a consistent view on an asset class. Whereas this time around, there's clearly different camps that think different things are going to happen to different asset classes based on their experience and what's going on right now and during this whole pandemic. You know, I could tell you that at PwC, one of the messages that we've given to to our people as well is that we're not going back 
to pre-COVID in terms of how we use our real estate. We're going to be using it differently. And so clearly it's, it's going to have an impact on our organization on how we use it. So it'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out and how, you know, next year, what's transpired with all of these conversations. Great. Thanks, Frank. I, I love that. That good wrap up, good summary. We are in the business of housing enterprise and enterprise is shifting rapidly. And so how it impacts our businesses going to be really fascinating. I look forward to next year because I'm sure it'll be as equally divergent as you say. Thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. And we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Wise Meter Solutions, is Canada's leading provider of submetering and utility expense management services. Let us help you achieve your goals, be they a greener operation or financial performance, reflecting a $45,000 increase per suite in property value. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise is your go-to partner. All right. Well, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show. I always love that episode. I mean, for maybe some of our regular listeners, that's the, I think, third or fourth year. Third year with Frank, fourth year, I think, in total we've done it. Maybe even the fifth year. I mean, I'm losing track, but it's always really interesting. What I hope our listeners benefited, because it's the first time where we actually kind of follow a long discussion. Historically, we kind of just talked about it and then said, read this afterwards. But we've kind of said, open it up and come through with us because you might actually find more value participating in the podcast while also following along on the on the document, on, on the report. And so on that trend, rather than digesting what you and I thought about it, because I think we kind of did that throughout the podcast, let's just pick something that we think is interesting and focus on that that we didn't cover. And so I, for those that did actually open the report, we're actually going to go to the COVID-19 impacts on key trends. as uh, a tiny little chart on page 10 of the PDF page six of the actual report, because there's some really kind of interesting concepts there. Yeah, the whole year was really defined by COVID by accelerating or decelerating existing trends. And you can see that's evidenced in this list here. Even work from home was becoming more and more popular despite the rapid, rapid increase that happened in March. But if you if you go further down the list, we're seeing suburban migration. You hear about that in so many markets. That are, and, there's, and there actually is MLS data to support that in a lot of markets across the country. Retail sector transformation. We talked about that in another episode just recently. The retail was already in the middle of a large pivot, and they're clearly continuing now. Is there anything on the accelerated list, Aaron, that you're surprised to see there? I mean, let's go here first. So retail sector transformation. I mean, we knew that that was happening pre-COVID. We've had multiple, multiple guests. I mean, I think everybody's just talking about how COVID-19 has had an implication or impact on retail. But I'm starting to hear discussions about just alternative uses of retail popping up. I was talking to, to somebody, I can't remember who, about just the prevalence of these small golf simulator shops that are popping up because people are realizing, well, if I can work from home, I can work from the golf course, but particularly in Canada where it's cold six months of the year, four months of the year, whatever it is, I need a place I can still go and swing a golf club. And so all of a sudden you're finding new tenants in these retail plazas of golf simulators. I mean, that's just an example of capitalism is dynamic and evolves. And if there's opportunities, people will figure out a way to profit from it, right? And so, I mean, the demise of retail, I think, was heavily overblown, which we've talked about at length. And I think now we're starting to see just a transformation of retail. So I I like the way that that's kind of stated there. To be clear for anybody not reading the actual report, 
golf simulators weren't specifically mentioned as a trend to watch, but it, it is a good highlight of the philosophy of adapt or die, which is true across all real estate. It's just a little more pronounced right now in retail. Well, you know, I always use this as from Peter Cuthbert of Fiera, where we're in the business of housing enterprise. And enterprise is going to adapt and change and evolve very, very quickly. And they're going to define needs for real estate to house them, right? And it's, I just, I find it very fascinating. What do you think is the most interesting on the stopped or slowed by the COVID-19 list? Yeah, there's a lot of things, obviously, that just make perfect sense on the stopped or slowed down by COVID list. Leisure, travel, tourism, I don't think anybody needs to look too far to find an article on that. But apartment amenity wars is listed here. And this is this section of the report does encompass both the US and Canada. But my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Aaron, is that the amenity wars in the buildings was amplified because people are spending more time at their apartments. So I was kind of shocked to see that one there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you'd think that given the fact that people are spending more time at home or in apartments, that there'd be a, an increase in amenity wars. So I don't necessarily understand that one. But again, this is a survey of the greatest minds in real estate across North America. This list is North America wide. So clearly that's a trend that's occurring. Whether we maybe, maybe it has it to do with, maybe it has to do with, with rent freezes or the expectation of getting less rent that maybe you don't have the budget to include a lavish amenity package that you would have previously. I mean, I'm, that part, I'm just kind of speculating. That's not in the report, but if we're trying to think this out. That could be a possible reason. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if you're building amenities, not necessarily appreciating the rental growth that you're going to attract from it, assuming that you're not going to get any rental growth, regardless of your amenities, then why spend the money on new amenities, right? Like the one we always use is the lazy river, right? Like (laughs) you're you're not building a lazy river right now, hoping that it might, you know, help increase your rental rates. So I'm pretty sure that's something that most people aren't going to be using in a COVID-19 world. The one that I find kind of interesting is university towns, as far as stopped or slowed by COVID-19. I guess it makes sense if you think about it, And I'd not actually kind of gone through my mind, particularly in the Canadian context, about those cities that are reliant on universities. You know, we're always Ontario-centric, but even if I think across Canada, like you think about Wolfville, which is where Bishop University is, or you think about where Acadia University, and can't remember the name of the small little town and kind of up the coast in Halifax. I mean, there are lots of towns that are fairly heavily reliant on that influx of thousands and thousands of students annually that are just aren't experiencing that sort of economic gain now. Yeah. And of course, the entire ecosystem around them. I mean, I think that Aaron, you went to not a town that was reliant on universities. You were in Kitchener-Waterloo area for your university and I was in London, Ontario. Same thing, not entirely reliant on those students. But if they're comprising 30% of your revenue every year, and all of a sudden they're not there. That's a tough year. It's not a going out of business year, but it's definitely going to be a tough year. And then, of course, you think about the cities you did cite as an example where the entire economy would focus around that. That's a hard stop when you lose those students all rolling into town, freshly capitalized with student debt that they're going to blow into the uh, local market. Yeah. Oh, I'm just thinking of the bars and restaurants that aren't getting that Friday and Saturday night or yeah, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, <laughs> Saturday night influx of students, right? Let's just scan this list and we'll, we'll finish off here. But what kept coming up, interestingly to me, is sort of safety and health concerns or safety and health concerns and buildings, prop tech shift to work from home and building safety. And, and as I'm reading that out loud, I guess that's really a result of as we return back or as we shift to the next normal, 
how do you change your infrastructure within your real estate to prevent against a share of, or what's the word I'm looking for, to protect your tenants or protect your users from sharing COVID or any other future virus? Well, you got to think the buildings would have the same conundrum that the apartments might have in that likely the office towers are not going to see big rent jumps anytime soon, but there'll be an expectation they deliver these cleaner, more safe environments in order to get people back in the office. You know, something's got to give somewhere and it might be a return for the ultimate landlords. It's a weird weird world we live in, Adam, right now. And let's date stamp it again. I think it's November 3rd or whatever it is that we're recording. And we're all in this, I think, for a little bit longer still. And who knows what's going to happen next? And let me just finalize. And I want to re- re- go back to what we talked about at the beginning. And I find this kind of interesting. At the beginning of this, it was the demise of retail. Retail is dead. Like that was the language we were hearing. And, and media was picking up on that. And I'm excited to see what the transformation looks like, how the evolution of retail works out. And retail may come back healthier and stronger than ever before at the end of this. And I find that kind of really interesting as we kind of work our way through the first pandemic in 100 years. Yeah, I agree. It really forces your hand if you were sputtering along in an old business model and looking to the future to adapt. The pandemic has definitely forced your hand in terms of you need to adapt your property for a new world. So maybe there'll be some positive to come from this and that we'll all be living in a better retail environment either side of this. Aaron, we could do probably an hour and a half after show on this report because there was still so much of it we didn't talk about. But I definitely encourage anybody interested. It's a very, very comprehensive, very wide-reaching report with hundreds of people contributing. It's a massive effort. You can download it at uh, at the show notes on our site, or you can, of course, just Google PwC ULI Emerging Trends Report 2021, and you will get it. Encourage everybody, go out and read it, and it'll make you uh, just a touch smarter, hopefully. Well, yeah. And what we didn't cover is that it's 120 pages long. The first 20 pages are Canada. The remaining 95 pages is the US. So if you have an interest in what trends are occurring in the United States commercial real estate market, this is an incredible resource for you. Or if you want to get to the Canadian ones, but don't have a lot of time, it's just 20 pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Wise for sponsoring this episode. And we look really forward to having Frank back on again next year. This is always a big hit, I know, with the uh, listeners in terms of download numbers and feedback. So I hope you all enjoyed it. Quick reminder to register for the 2020 Real Estate Forum, which takes place on the 2nd and 3rd of December by going to realestateforums.com. Real Estate Forum Club members, remember to enter your membership number to receive your 20% discount. Adam and I really look forward to connecting with you and many others this year at the Forum. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.